This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LEFT2. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The David Pakman Show, The Onion Radio News, Jim Hightower, Food Waste TV, Veg Source, The Inquiring Minds podcast, and The Majority Report. There are 10,000 estimated sick from a salmonella chicken outbreak. This is the second time this year federal officials are, are warning the public about salmonella infections associated specifically with Foster Farms chicken. In this latest outbreak, officials have confirmed about 280 cases, according to a public health alert. And the previous uh, breakout, which was in July, just a couple of months ago, the CDC noted about 135 illnesses. Now, they actually have a metric, which is they assume that for every one reported case, 25 go unreported. And based on that, if you take the 280 cases plus the 135, multiply that by 25, they estimate that around 10,000 people have been sickened in the last 12 months based on that multiplier. That's a lot of people to develop food poisoning after consuming a product that is well known to have been contaminated with salmonella. This was traced to raw chicken, the USDA alert, and a foster farm statement both stress the importance of safe food handling, saying food needs to be cooked, that chicken, poultry, needs to be cooked to an internal temperature of 165 degrees Fahrenheit. However, when we actually look more deeply at this, Dr. Katrina Hedberg, who's an uh, epidemiologist, said consumers are actually not to blame. This is not an outbreak because people decided to eat their chicken uh, too rare. This is simply because of too much bacteria. So, Lewis, again, this is interesting because we've been using the example recently of foodborne illness as uh, uh, the culprit of far more deaths in most years for Americans than terrorism and the disproportionate amount of industry and spending that surrounds the security complex and disproportionately little attention is paid to things like food inspection which even even because of the shutdown could suffer here we're seeing those numbers again 10,000 estimated sick this year because of salmonella right and I guess it's a matter of, it should be a matter of priority but we clearly we have our priorities backwards you know David if these terrorists uh, had lobbyists and were over in this country uh, you know helping out our, our politicians I bet you things would be very different they would be drastically different and the USDA has actually known about this problem for a decade Oregon scientists have been tracking a salmonella Heidelberg strain not to be confused with Heisenberg of course uh, first associated with uh, Foster Farms back in 2004. And the reason why they continue selling raw poultry is that you can actually have a 10% incidence rate of salmonella and continue to operate. Does that sound high to you, Lewis? It does seem a little high. That's, uh, that sounds strange, but it might be true, right? Yeah, it absolutely is true. I mean, factually speaking, you're allowed to have a 10% incidence rate of salmonella. Listen, gal, 
It's the Onion Radio News. A virulent strain of soy flu is traced to a single tofurkey. This is Doyle Redland reporting. The Centers for Disease Control announced today that it has traced a potentially lethal strain of soy flu to a single tofurkey at a San Francisco Bay Area food processing factory. CDC Director Dr. Julie Gerberding. An investigation of green earth foods has located the bird-shaped loaf of bean curd from which the infection originated. And to prevent further spreading of the disease, all tofurkeys in Northern California have been quarantined and will be destroyed. Gerberding also said the soy virus does not appear to have been transmitted to the factory's spaghetti and wheat balls microwavable entree division. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News, online at theonion.com. Nicholas Kristof, a New York Times columnist and former farm boy, says, quote, The central problem with modern industrial agriculture is not just that it produces unhealthy food, mishandles waste, and overuses antibiotics in ways that harm us all. More fundamentally, it has no soul. This is the driving ethic of the good food movement. It rebuts the insistence that agriculture is nothing but a business. It certainly is a business, but it's a good business, literally producing goodness, because it's a way of life for hard-working people who practice the art and science of cooperating with Mother Nature, rather than always trying to overwhelm her. Small-scale farmers don't want to be massive or make a killing. They want to farm and make delicious, healthy food products that help enrich the whole community. The spirit was summed up in one word by Lee Jones, a sustainable farmer who was asked what he'd be if he wasn't a farmer. He replied, disappointed. To farmers like these, food embodies our full culture, a word that is sculpted right into agriculture and is essential to its organic meaning. Although agriculture is now flourishing throughout the land and has forestalled the total takeover of our food by crass agribusiness, The corporate powers and their political hirelings continue to press for the elimination of the food rebels and ultimately to impose their vision of complete corporatization. This is one of the most important populist struggles occurring in our society. It's literally a fight for the control of our dinner. This is Jim Hightower saying, To find small-scale farmers, artisans, farmers markets, and other resources in your area for everything from organic tomatoes to pastured turkey, visit www.localharvest.org That's www.localharvest.org In the spark of industry are bustling through the town The engine's driving at the turn of century The public house was swarming men as the sun fell past the hills Hard worked at the mines and sundown lane with the blackened sky came the cold for war And all the young men went never to return At the end of harvest season 
It's a lot more than we think. It's not only the 1.3 billion tons of food that are being wasted worldwide. An amount of food that could supply all the hungry people on Earth three times over. Our trash bins are spilling over with what we don't see. Whether north, south, east, or west, food waste and losses affect everyone. In developing countries, over a third of the food spoils due to insufficient storage facilities and possibilities for transport. In industrialized nations, the same share is thrown away by commerce, the hospitality industry, and individual households. With every bit of food that lands in the trash, we're not only wasting valuable nourishment; we are also wasting the resources needed to produce the food in the first place. From water, farmland, and energy, to labor and investments, by exporting foodstuffs and animal feed, countries export their scarce resources too. With each apple that's thrown away, we dispose of enough drinking water to flush a toilet seven times, producing one single hamburger uses up 2,400 liters of water. With the meat part accounting for 2,200 liters, with every burger we consume enough water to fill 16 bathtubs. Wasting milk and meat poses a special problem. Products from animals use up incredible quantities of water and land, in particular for irrigation and cultivation of feed. On a global scale, animal husbandry and feed production require over 70% of the agricultural land area. For example, one 200-gram beef steak uses up an area of seven square meters of farmland. That means, for every steak that spoils, we end up wasting farmland where 27 kilograms of potatoes could be grown. Everything that contributes to the scarcity of resources ultimately makes food more expensive. This affects farmland too. Overuse takes its toll on the very foundation of agriculture. Several billion tons of fertile soil are lost each year. What's left is worn-out, unproductive land. By letting less food go to waste, we regain valuable farmland necessary to feed the growing world population. Industrial food and fertilizer production, storage and logistics are energy intensive, but it requires many times that energy to process and deep freeze food. Above and beyond this, increased livestock produces more climate-relevant gases than the transport sector worldwide. As a result, food waste ranks as a top emitter of greenhouse gases. What kind of corporate management would accept 33% in annual losses? The wide-ranging causes for food waste call for the widest variety of problem-solving approaches.
In developing countries, the focus lies on infrastructure. In particular, easily perishable food must be able to be stored appropriately and transported rapidly. By building up logistics and ensuring a purchase guarantee, food losses can be significantly reduced. In industrialized nations, politics, business and households need to work on doing away with often bizarre cosmetic standards for fruits and vegetables and counterproductive, often confusing labeling. They also need to learn how to prepare and store food better. Buying only what you really need is worthwhile. Enjoying meat in moderation is healthy. If you've bought or cooked too much of something, it can be passed on or shared. It's very easy to be a food saver. Squarespace touts itself as a platform for building professional websites and online portfolios so easily that anyone can do it. I know what some of you are thinking, though. Anyone can do it? Well, they've obviously underestimated my fear of technology. Am I right? I mean, sure, their system is intuitive, but what about people without intuition? What an unjust discrimination. Well, no, they actually have you unintuitive people covered as well. Their help center has just been redesigned and really goes above and beyond. Normally, you think of a help center as a place where you go and ask questions, but you know, what if your question is, how do I make a website that might sort of overwhelm a customer service rep? Well, at Squarespace, they've added a whole catalog of guides that will take you step-by-step through just about anything you'll want to do with your Squarespace site, from just how to get started all the way through fancy integration with third-party services and everything in between. Now I know what some of you are thinking, step-by-step guides, eh? Well, they've obviously overestimated my ability to read. Not to worry, though, they have you covered as well. Not only do many of their guides come with videos, but they also have a series of video workshops, which is basically like sitting down with an expert and having them explain the whole process of mastering one aspect of your site to you in detail. Then if all that isn't enough, there's always live chat. You can get a response right away and 24-hour email support with a hard-to-believe response time of under an hour. None of that. We try to respond to every message within two business days nonsense. So try Squarespace for free for 14 days. You'll get to see all the details, take advantage of all this stuff yourself. And then when you're ready to sign up, be sure to use the special offer code LEFT Two, that's L-E-F-T and the number two to get 10% off your purchase. And that code also lets them know that you're supporting this show at the same time. Turns out cows are being fed chicken poop. The FDA doesn't seem too anxious to stop it. Mother Jones reporting on this originally from one uh, from I'm sorry, onearth.org. Some of the farming methods that are being used are more than unappetizing and they could be deadly. One practice in particular could allow for the spread of bovine spongiform encephalopathy or BSC, often known colloquially as mad cow disease. So here's what's going on, Lewis. The practice is feeding what's known as poultry litter to farmed cattle. And poultry litter is the stuff you scrape off the floor of a hen house. So it has 
chicken feces as well as feathers and uneaten chicken food, etc. But some of the uneaten chicken food has some beef in it. So you see the circle that's being created here, Lewis, which is a horrifyingly disgusting one. It sounds pretty repulsive, yeah. Yeah. So this is worrisome because, number one, this is one of the primary ways in which uh, uh, BSC or mad cow disease can be spread. But also, the USDA has made it pretty clear that cows just shouldn't be eating this for health purposes. So even if it doesn't result in mad cow, you're still getting beef that is less preferable, so to speak. Uh, meat and bone meal containing infected bovine protein is the chief culprit behind the spread of mad cow disease. The U.S. FDA banned the practice of feeding the remains of dead cows to living ones about 16 years ago, but it never prohibited feeding those to chickens and then using the chicken feed for the cows, which is essentially creating a very, very similar circle. Um, the FDA estimates that between 1 million and 2 million tons of this stuff are fed to U.S. cattle every single year. And the FDA is not really actively pursuing this as an issue. This is flat out disgusting, Lewis, but it also takes me a step back and makes me say, can we just feed the cows grass, please, like we do in Argentina, where I'm from, and in so many other countries? What, what about just grass? Oh, I don't know. I guess that's too expensive. Yeah. Right? Well, you know, yeah, it, it's not so much that it's too well, expensive, but you get less meat from each cow, right. so to speak. Right. I mean, it's all about productivity, increasing the size of the cow, the fat content, and it's all about making money. So I guess that's why they're being fed so much corn and who knows what else. I've drastically reduced my red meat consumption, not so much because I don't like it here and there, but just because unless I can find out more about where it came from, the diet, uh, all as much information as I can, meaning I'm buying it myself at some kind of trusted butcher shop or, or supermarket, it's, there's just too much of this stuff going on. And, and I, I've, my, my red meat consumption is almost zero in the United States at this point. Yeah, that's, that seems like the way to go. I mean, unless you know that it was a, a local or a properly raised and fed cow, it's not worth the risk. I am part of the Baskin Robbins family. My dad and my uncle founded and owned and ran that company. And I saw the results of eating a lot of ice cream in my family. And they weren't healthy. They weren't happy. And I, that was one of the first things that stimulated in me a desire to find a different way of eating and a different way of, of living that was more respectful of our bodies, more respectful of the earth and of the natural order and of our own natures. And uh, I moved away very young. As soon as I got away from living at home, actually, I, I moved away from processed foods 
adulterated foods, refined foods. Uh, I became a vegetarian. And it was an act of rebellion in some ways against the dominant cultural direction that's so meat-based and dairy-based. And what I found was I felt better. I felt lighter. I felt clearer. I felt cleaner. Uh, I felt freer. Uh, and I had a joy in my cells that I had never known before. And I think part of that was not eating the flesh and the products from animals whose lives had been nightmares of suffering because that's what modern meat production is, is, is based on. We treat these animals as if they had no needs, no value, as if they were just commodities. And we frustrate all their instincts. I'm talking about agribusiness. I'm talking about modern meat. And then we eat these products from them as if it was the normal thing to do when really there's misery on the menu when we do that. And I think that's one of the reasons I felt so much better when I stopped eating those foods was because I wasn't eating the suffering that was embedded in the tissues and the cells of these animals. Angel, criminal, animal, mineral, and spiritual. All sinners, all head spinners, so-called experts, we're all beginners. Enter the age of Aquarius, carnivores, and vegetarians. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. In 1972, I was part of a nationwide campaign that came close to getting the U.S. Senate to reject Earl Butts, Richard Nixon's choice for Secretary of Agriculture. A coalition of grassroots farmers, consumers, and public interest organizations teamed up with progressive senators to undertake the almost impossible challenge of defeating the cabinet nominee. The 51 to 44 Senate vote was so close because we were able to expose Butts as, well, as Butt Ugly. We brought the abusive power of corporate agribusiness into the public consciousness for the first time. We had won a moral victory, but it turned out to be a curse and a blessing. First, the curse. Butts had risen to prominence in the world of agriculture by devoting himself to the corporate takeover of the global food economy. He openly promoted the preeminence of middlemen food manufacturers over family farmers. Agriculture is no longer a way of life, he barked. It's a business. He instructed farmers to get big or get out, and proceeded to shove tens of thousands of them out by promoting an export-based, corporate-run food economy. Adapt, he warned, or die. The ruination of farms and rural communities, Butts added, releases people to do something useful in our society. This is Jim Hightower saying, the curse of Butts, however, spun off a blessing. Small farmers and food artisans practically threw up at the resulting twinkieization of America's food. They were sickened that nature's own contribution to human culture was being turned into another plasticized product of corporate profiteers. 
They threw themselves into creating and sustaining a viable alternative, linking locally with consumers, environmentalists, community activists, marketers, and others. The Good Food Rebellion has since sprouted, spread, and blossomed from coast to coast. To find farmers markets and other expressions of this movement right where you live, go to localharvest.org. I wake up in the morning and I stretch my limbs. I sing a couple hymns and fetch my Tim's. Sip some herbs, see strictly rules on stems. I take some fresh fruit and squeeze the juice from them. I don't drink milk that produces phlegm. I don't care if it's low fat or even skim. And this is the way we stay fit on trim. So you don't ever have me die in a hit the gym. I don't eat spam or green eggs and ham. I like the whole wheat toast with the strawberry jam. That's the type of man that I am. I eat the food that grows up from the land. The rice, the beans, the wheat, the corn, and the yam. So I don't need approval from Uncle Sam. It's, it's a taboo, and yet at the same time, don't you find that when you, everybody, if, if they stop to think about it, would say that there has to be some maximum. I mean, surely you cannot have any number of people on the planet. Everyone would certainly agree that there's some number that's too many, right? Well, you would think so. Um, and, you know, this is a question that I raised at the end of my last book, The World Without Us. That, that book was really not about promoting a world without human beings as a better place. I theoretically wiped us off the planet to show how beautifully the world and swiftly the world could uh, restore itself, renew itself, fill niches that we have inadvertently emptied. And then what I was hoping was that readers would say, wow, is there a way that we can add ourselves back into that picture only in some kind of healthy relationship with the rest of nature? But... I learned, it was, it was towards the end of writing that book, a rather unsettling fact that about every four to four and a half days, we were adding a million people to the planet. Didn't seem very likely that that would be sustainable. But I left that dangling at the end of the world without us, and I found out, just as you said, a lot of people, most people, sense that there are limits. I expected a lot of blowback on that point, and instead I found myself being received warmly by Mormon audiences in Utah, on Catholic radio programs, and Southern Baptist radio programs, as well as, you know, the usual NPR suspects. So it seems that, yes, we do sense that something is approaching an intolerable point, or at least an uncomfortable point. Whether it's intolerable or not is one thing that I had to find out in the research of this book. And I want to I want to talk more about your conclusions, but just one more thing, setting the stage a little bit. I mean, the taboo that we've been talking about, the book suggests that it wasn't always as strong of a taboo. I mean, maybe you're trying to reopen this, force the discussion back open, but it, it wasn't always the case. I mean, there was a period, it seems like, in the 60s and 70s where it was very mainstream to talk about this. Well, in the 1960s, the population of the world suddenly doubled in the 20th century, and then it was 50% higher than that. There were like more than that. There were 3.5 billion people in the end of the 1960s when Paul and Anne Ehrlich wrote The Population Bomb. And it got a lot of people's imagination and became an international bestseller. Now, this was also at the same time that humanity had finally gotten far enough away from the planet to turn around and take a picture of it, and we could suddenly see how unique we were in space, at least as far as we could tell out there. 
and environmental consciousness suddenly rose to a great new pitch. Uh, you know, it had been smoldering with Aldo Leopold and Rachel Carson, but suddenly it was front burner stuff. And population seemed like a natural part of these things, that there are limits to growth. There was, of course, the famous book by Meadows and Randall about uh, with that title. But then there was a backlash. I mean, first it was, you know, oh, wow, resources are running out. Well, let's go get them while they're getting our good. And then this global marketplace appeared. Trade barriers were struck down. And suddenly it looked like we were surrounded by abundance. And when you're surrounded by abundance, you really go into denial, wanting to believe that anything is ever going to change. It's a tremendous relief. You've been thinking about scarcity and limitations. And suddenly, oh, wow, I can have blueberries all year round. You know, this is great. And tremendous resistance set in because anybody who felt that we were going to be having to limit ourselves they weren't just thinking about number of children per family. They were thinking about money because the dirty underside of capitalism, but not just capitalism, every other society virtually that we've had, every other economy that we've had, is that if you define the health of the economy by growth, that means population growth. You always have to have more consumers out there and you have to have more laborers. And frankly, overpopulation is terrific for business because then labor becomes cheap. So that's why there's been an awful lot of resistance. And I, I might as well just bring it up right here. The libertarians are going to have a huge argument with you. Uh, and so let's just say what they're going to say because they're going to say it. And they're going to they're going to call you a Malthusian. They're going to say you're preaching doom and gloom. They're going to say that human ingenuity always comes through and solves these problems and technology asserts itself and, and helps change the equation and make the projections wrong. Uh, so what you must be ready for that. I mean, what are you going to say to that? Well, I, I, I have... Three responses to that. First of all, I think that you're unfairly dissing the libertarians because the libertarians are going to like the solution that ultimately comes up. Okay, yeah. And that is letting everybody decide how many children they want, which means giving every woman on earth and then every man because male contraceptives are coming, but giving them universal access to contraception and letting them to decide for themselves. Libertarians don't really have an argument with personal freedom. Also, the part about me preaching, I approach the thing as a journalist. This is all I've ever been. I'm not an advocate for population control or against population control. I examine this thing to see whether it's necessary. Am I convinced by the facts that it is? Yeah, I am. But as with my last book, which I was on a lot of conservative radio programs, I was welcomed on them because they say, you know, this guy isn't preaching. He's just putting the facts out there and letting you readers decide for yourselves. And I think that the facts ultimately, you know, add up to the same conclusion. But here's the real response to this idea that human ingenuity is always going to save the day. The example that everybody points to is that Paul and Ann Ehrlich and Malthus before them were proved wrong because human ingenuity came up with a green revolution in the 1960s, right when that book came out, that suddenly, through all these crossbred, ingenious new strains of wheat and rice, and then followed by corn, 
into the mix and saved India and Pakistan and other regions of the world from falling into the famine that they were surely headed to. And that didn't happen. So everybody says that Norman Borlaug, who won the Nobel Peace Prize for founding the Green Revolution, great plant geneticist, he disproved Malthus and Ehrlich forever. The part that they, it's kind of cherry-picked because the part that they neglect to add is um, Norman Borlaug's Nobel acceptance speech. He didn't sit there congratulating himself as he was congratulated by others for having saved more lives than any human in history. He said, we have bought the world some time, but unless population control and food, increased food production go hand in hand, we are going to lose this. And Norman Borlaug, until he died about four years ago, was on the board of population groups. He believed that managing our populations was essential to our survival on this planet because he understood that, they were, that there were limits. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition. NSAC is, quote, an alliance of grassroots organizations that advocates for federal policy reform to advance the sustainability of agriculture, food systems, natural resources, and rural communities, unquote. Basically, they're the best of the left of our food supply. They aggregate the efforts of nearly 100 groups around the country that are doing the -the on-the-ground work necessary necessary to make sure that we can eat, our children can eat, and hopefully our great-great-grandchildren can eat as well. Sustainable agriculture endeavors to secure our environmental health, economic profitability, and social and economic equity, making it the intersection of many issues we on the left say matter, but often set aside while working hard on important things. But what could be more important than a need as basic as food? With an eye toward the future, sustainable agriculture seeks to provide for the now without infringing on future generations' ability to live and grow. We must revive the notion that we are all stewards of the land. The University of California Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Program describes this stewardship in part this way, quote, Reaching toward the goal of sustainable agriculture is the responsibility of all participants in the system, including farmers, laborers, policymakers, researchers, retailers, and consumers. Each group has its own part to play, its own unique contribution to make to strengthen the sustainable agriculture community, unquote. 
NSAC makes it easy for you to play your part as a citizen and consumer of food. Visit their Take Action page, currently focused on the recent passage of the Farm Bill. Their analysis and graphics manage to break down an impossibly complicated process into understandable pieces. As Congress is constantly in the process of negotiating the next Farm Bill, even when it's five years away from the next vote, this information is vital. While you're there, sign up for Action Alerts by entering your email and zip code. It takes 10 seconds and will plug you into their rapid response for local and national votes on legislation that impacts our food supply. Recently, NSAC has fought against harmful pieces of the Food Safety Modernization Act, which threaten farmers' markets, and for Senator John Tester's legislation to protect independent producers from Monsanto's attempts to lobby them into extinction. If we don't become mindful of how our food is produced, such willful ignorance will quickly become a privilege afforded to none. Let's not wait until a crisis of epic movie blockbuster proportions forces us to come together. Go to sustainableagriculture.net and get plugged in today. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage with action? Who's this? Um, I'm Brendan from Schenectady, and I'm calling because I I wanted to provide you an argument for why I don't think that we should label GMOs. Okay. And just to preface it, I'm not coming from a libertarian perspective. I like labeling in general. I just don't think at this point labeling GMOs achieves the goal that labeling is supposed to achieve. What is the goal that labeling is supposed to achieve? To better inform the public. Like, I, I like putting the calories on items in McDonald's and stuff like that, because I think the public has a pretty good understanding of what calories are. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't maybe. think that the current public understanding of GMOs is is sufficient to do much to let them know about them via labeling. Well, I mean, you don't think there's any value in um, in making people aware of, I mean, do, well, let me ask you this. I mean, from my perspective, the issue is the, 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 the current regime, the application of GMOs, I think is problematic for the environment and I think ultimately problematic for our food supply. Now, I don't know if you agree or disagree with that. I mean, what would, I mean, give me your... I, I think your position on GMOs is, is pretty reasonable. You, I, I know you accept the science on it, and you also are a suspect of some of the environmental stuff, and I'm pretty much with you on that in that regard. But don't you think that there's value in, I mean, frankly, um, I would like to see a simplification of things like, what is dextrose? What is malkatose? What is all of those things that are actually um, corn products? So that there is a greater understanding and a more transparency about our food policies in this country. I mean, I, I mean, I think that there's, there's validity, um, uh, there with that. I mean, look, what, what do you th- feel about like organic uh, labeling? Well, organic labeling is, is pretty poorly pulled off because of the regulations around it. It means something different for every product. And I, I think that's a good example of where 
the labeling might lead people to think that those things are not what they are. I, I'd be more for a more universal standard of organic that's maybe a little more strict. But okay, okay, all right. So I think we're on to something here. All right. So the the execution of that labeling, uh, I, I I would agree with you, is is somewhat problematic. But why? Is there any well, are evidence? You mean why? Why is, is there the any GMO ev- labeling problematic? No, no. But why Why would you, let's say you could get the perfect organic labeling. Why? Mm. Well, I think it's better to get it as close to something that is easy for the public to understand so no, that the labeling achieves its goal. No, I understand. But what is the value of, if we could get it right, in, in if we, you and I could come to an agreement on, on the right way to label something organic, why should it be that mm-hmm. way? What's the value of that because label? Because that way... So that people can make a more informed decision about what they're buying. Yeah, but I mean, do you think that non-organic stuff is is inherently less healthy? No, not really. I mean, I so I what's think the that value there's, there's of va- putting? There's studies that show different ways on different products. Right. Okay. Products. So what's the value though of putting organic on the label, in your estimation? If so we could... people can, so that when shopping people can make more informed decisions about the things that they're buying. That's exactly my argument about why we should do uh, GMO labeling. And I think if that there was a better public understanding of what GMOs are and and with and everything I think that then at that point there would be a good case for putting the label on. Whose responsibility is that? That's the government's responsibility. To educate the public on GMOs. I think they should. I okay. mean, I, I generally like well, here's, the here's government why, going out and informing people about things, as they do with cigarettes or stuff like that. Here's why I think the GMO labeling is a good idea, because I want the public to understand what our food policy is. And this may be a mm-hmm. bit of a bank shot, but I don't think there's a downside to it. And if labeling GMOs as GMOs forces corporations or the government or public advocates or scientists from um, illuminating our food policy more than I am for it. Is it a bit of a bank shot? Yeah, probably. But what's the downside of it? Oh, I think that there's a couple of downsides. One being that if with such such poor public understanding of GMOs, I think that labeling them might confuse and, to a lesser extent, scare people more than it will actually cause them to become informed and, about it. Okay, so if they're scared, what happens then? Well, then they change their buying habits, which causes fluctuations in the food market that, that can cause the price of some foods to go up, which does have a tangible effect of hurting and even killing some people in their world country. Wait, so it's going to hurt... People in third world countries, if the if 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 we small fluctuations in the cost of food tangibly cause deaths in some countries. Yeah, but but That's we're not talking about labeling like bankers, you know, bidding on or uh, you know playing games with the cost of food. It causes people to die. Wait a second. So wait a second. So sh- wait, you're going to have to explain to me how if people change their buying habits in this country, it's going to affect food prices. In other countries, because changes in, in the because the food often comes from some of those other countries, or those other countries still rely on the same markets because they're global commodities to get their food, and so fluctuations in the price of food will 
more down to the, the commodities themselves, not necessarily the packaged finished product. Those things do cause changes in the price. If the price goes up, less people do eat. I don't think that's a universal reason to never do anything, but I think in this case, uh, do you think I would that's a problem with organic I mean, too? I'm, I would be totally open to evidence that that wouldn't happen. Do you think that's a uh, case with organic too? I mean, if people start buying more organic, why wouldn't it, that di- same dynamic exist in that way? Because I don't think that the organic label um, scares people. No, no, but 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 it, but, it, but it raises the price of the non-organic stuff, right? Or it raises the price of organic food, doesn't it? I mean, there's no... Well, it causes more demand for the organic food, which should actually drive down the price of organic food and slightly increase the cost of non-organic food. Well, okay, so non-organic food, wouldn't that hurt the people in the, these these countries, these foreign countries that you're talking about as well? I think it theoretically could, but that's why I said I don't necessarily think it's a universal reason to never do anything. I okay. think that there All are right. benefits. I, I'm sorry. I mean, I think things once if that's the best argument, if that's the best argument that there is perhaps, and, and I'm still not quite clear on how this works, uh, that if people change their buying habits in this country, it could, mm. it could hurt the food supplies of other countries. I'm not sure I well, buy. It could hurt the food supplies of other countries, but it could also hurt, I mean, just to make it a little, less esoteric. It could hurt people in this country, too, because there are people who rely on food being cheap, and fluctuations in the price of food do change the price of food Yeah, for people. Yeah, I guess. I mean... I mean, I, I don't think this is the universal argument. Are we seeing that with Cheerios? I mean, I mean, are we seeing that with Cheerios? I mean, did they just make a decision not to do it? I, I, I just, I personally think... That making the American public more aware of our food policies uh, has mm-hmm. has far more benefit than than the the downsides. I'm not sure I buy into the downsides you're talking about. I mean, if there are other reasons, mm-hmm. I'm certainly open to them. But I'm just not convinced of the opportunity cost, frankly. But I appreciate. Well, I, like um, I, I can't I can't remember if it was Matt or Michael that made this argument, but he said he wanted GMOs labeled um, so that he knew what came from these corporations. Um, I, 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 I appreciate that argument, but I think that we would do that better just by having better labeling policies for what companies are involved in the production of individual food. I'd I'm not against that either, but I think, look, say if, where I, look uh, you know, if that was on the table, then fine, but it's not. I mean, you know, I, I, I just, I just don't see the cost of, of putting the, the labels on there as being, uh, as outweighing the benefits to making people aware of it. I, I just, I, I don't understand, but I appreciate the phone call, but I, I gotta say that I just don't understand, uh, this is not about demonizing science. It is about, uh, demonizing a policy that I can, that has broader implications outside of the constructing of, of new, uh, types of, of, uh, of plants. I, I just, uh, I just don't I just don't quite get it, um, but I, I appreciate the call. But if you're arguing that Matt or Michael is wrong, uh, 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 that you're on much more solid footing. <laughs> but that's also a broad argument. I mean, if, if, if the whole point of food policy is just to keep commodities cheap, that allows everything under the umbrella we have now, right? That... All we subsidize now 
in terms of big agri practices, way beyond GMOs, but the level of spraying we have, the level of monoculture, the handful of agro businesses and agro companies that get most subsidies, that's what they give in return theoretically. They keep the price cheap. Well, that was the and plan, that, right? In 1972, you're yeah, going to yeah, subsidize the hell out of corn, and Americans are going to have more disposable right. income. Because- exactly. So the so the question is, if you want to, and that's a that's a really valid concern. But but obviously, the whole food system is very unsustainable and very destructive to public health in terms of things like obesity, overconsumption of sugar, and things like that. So then the question is shifting to things like you say they aren't on the table right now, but. More money for things like food stamps, more money for uh, investing in local agriculture and other forms of food distribution. I mean, I'm just saying, as long as the debate is just purely about keeping certain commodities cheap, that goes way beyond GMOs. That opens the door for everything. Yeah, I'm not sure, and I'm not even sure the the connection there. But um, uh, but I'd be interested if somebody has um, something to send me on how GMO labeling is going to significantly increase the the price of food I, I'm, I'm interested in it the green plastic watering can for a fake Chinese rubber plant and a fake plastic girl Very big news from the world of genetically modified food. Uh, The only study that linked GMOs with cancer has now been retracted, Lewis. Ryan sent me the story via TakePart.com. Also supporting information from a businessweek.com article. And Ryan said, as most people know, there's a huge organic food, food movement as well as a movement to label our food, both of which I support wholeheartedly. But I have to admit that those who wish to prove that GMO foods cause cancer still don't have much proof to back up that claim. Of course, it doesn't mean GMO foods do or do not cause health problems. So with inconclusive evidence, many people make their decisions based on belief rather than information. Do you have any thoughts on this? Absolutely. Lewis, we've talked for a while about uh, absolutely we need, to, we need to label GMOs. Huge campaign from big food corporations to fight against that. They spent a lot of money on that. We've talked about uh, the problems with copyright on crops and seeds and patents and how how much of a problem this causes for small farmers. Now, though, we do need to look specifically at this. And the widely publicized study, which was published uh, about a year and a few months ago by Food and Chemical Toxicology, attracted a lot of criticism right away. And that was before it was retracted last week. It was a two-year study, and it used 10 rats for the research And it turns out that the species of rat that was used is known to develop cancerous tumors regardless of its diet, basically saying you had a type of rat that could have developed cancers no matter what you fed them, and in addition, your sample size was only 10. And the study has has been discredited, Lewis. There is more information. We could could dig into more details, but that's, that's the essential important part. Now... Some have have reached out to me in addition to Ryan, who sent me the story, saying, hold on, 
the entire discrediting of that study has been funded and supported by big company, big food companies like Monsanto. I was not able to find that information. And the most important thing for me here, Lewis, is the following. Part of being an activist and a progressive is pushing for change and for progress where it is needed. And you have to be careful not to do the same when it is not needed or backed up by science because it is kind of like the boy who cried wolf. That is the effect. So, Lewis, I'm open to the idea that GMOs are bad for people's health. This, the most widely cited study that linked GMO consumption to cancer, has now been discredited. So as a progressive, I want to stay in the evidence-based arena when thinking about this. Right, and I'm sure there are a lot of people trying to figure out if this is harmful or not, but when there's only one study, you have to wonder if uh, if it's accurate. And so clearly we have our answer, and it's not surprising to me, but uh, I hope that there are people doing a lot of research on this because it is very important. If you want to be against GMOs, be against them because you don't like how big agriculture patents crops, patents these GMOs, and makes huge money, sues farmers where one or two seeds may have inadvertently blown into their field and planted and grown, or be against GMOs if they are unlabeled and push for full labeling of GMOs. But we have to have evidence and data. We had Dr. Church on the program sometime in the last year. I don't remember exactly when, uh, five, six months ago. And he said there is also not definitive evidence linking GMOs to health issues from their consumption. So we need more studies, Lewis. We need more data. But let's not, let's stay progressive on this, which is making our activism relate to the evidence we have. I don't think that's too much to ask. Travis unraptured another awesome deep cut guest. At the end, he gets to the heart of why farm subsidies should be tied to decommoditizing food staples. Vastly increasing farm subsidies would be a good way to basically nationalize food production without raising communism alarms. People shouldn't go hungry in the year of uh, our Lord 2014 because they don't have money. Chem Champion, I generally appreciate the balanced tone of your guests, but a line of attack you, you your guests, and particularly Michael, have used definitionally is anti-science to criticize an endeavor for not working yet in the case of golden rice is so facile and dull-brained as a phd chemical engineer when i worked at national laboratory and i was telling my boss an experiment didn't work he responded that's why it's called research wait 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 wait, wait. okay I, I got this this is how science works it's hard and it could take a long time you could make the same argument against looking for unified theory uh, both of which scientists have been working on for a hell of a lot longer than vitamin a and rich corn it's okay to be skeptical, but don't fall into this anti-science trap. By the way, it was the vast minority of my PhD science friends in favor of GMO labeling in Washington. Look, I'm not saying that the experiments into developing such a thing is wrong. The point is that the, 
they're not doing this for the sake of science. They're doing it specifically uh, to tout the wonders of a commercialized commodity that they have. The point is, is not that science is wrong or that there shouldn't be experiments into this or that the pursuit of these things are wrong, that the pursuit of crops that can uh, deal with uh, a lack of water or uh, can deal with these things are wrong. It's just that they are fundamentally tied up in the monopolization and the commodification of them. And that is very problematic. I'm not saying stop research into how to develop more enriched rice. I'm saying that that research should not be justification for allowing one company, two companies, to fundamentally undermine our our food production system. Can I just add two really quick things to that? I understand what's that so hard about that. I don't understand either. And I guess the point I made to be really clear, I said, number one, the promise that these crops would lead to less pesticide and herbicides has proven to be false. That is empirical reality. As with regards to golden rice, the point is not to stop experimenting like Sam is saying. The point is, is that the practical the 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 main implication of golden rice in policy and communication has just been a a PR fancy PR object that this industry trots out which doesn't a have much to do with their actual products and b is a legitimate thing to bring up if you keep promising these incredible results and since the 90s it has yet to happen that's a legitimate point to raise right Kev, man, I don't contend some of what your guest said. I only have a problem with the fringe GMO food skeptics who say GMOs have food uh, serious uh, health effects. I'm more, yeah, which is what we're not saying. Cheney shot the duck hunt dog. If the issue is Monsanto patenting seeds, monopolizing the industry, and environmental concerns, you shouldn't say this movement is about GMOs. If there is no health hazard, then there should be no imposed labeling. What? Well... I, I just don't understand what is the problem with the labeling. Well, maybe I want it to be labeled because I understand that Monsanto is trying to monopolize the food supply, and that's what I don't want to support with my money. Maybe I have no concerns about health whatsoever. Maybe I just don't want to support I, a certain way of, sort of, yeah, of patenting. transparency. I mean, frankly, I would like all products, too, to be labeled as received government funds. Or has pesticides or has herbicides? What's wrong with transparency in food generally? Maui Baker, Sammy, my wheat bread label has wheat flour in the ingredient list. And then again, I have to list contains wheat again at the bottom of the label. So it ends up being printed three times or I get fined. We're just a local bakery. Multi-million dollar Monsanto cannot be even a little responsible, liable for what they produce. Good point. And the final I am of the day, folks. Even nuclear dumps eventually degrade over the eons, but when you change a genome, it is forever.
Hi, Jay. This is Kate from Boston. Thank you so much for your fantastic show. I'm calling in regards to episode 795 on climate change. And it was a great episode, but it is really, really frustrating to have an entire episode dedicated to climate change and not hear one thing about the number one source of greenhouse gases, and that's animal agriculture. You know, it's not a fringe issue. It's not a side issue. It's the number one source, and it's really frustrating when progressives kind of toss this aside as if what we eat doesn't matter. It does. It is contributing to the destruction of our planet, and I just, I wish there was some acknowledgement of that because it's serious, and I know you take it seriously. All right, Jay, thanks so much. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. First of all, I want to respond to the first message I played. I totally agree there should be more talk about uh, the, the effects of animal agriculture on climate change and greenhouse gas emissions. You know, but I, I'm sort of handcuffed myself with this show because no one really talks about it. So I can't promote those segments. Um, when people talk about it, it's usually more in the context of a discussion about food and is mentioned as, as a, you know, one in, you know, half a dozen reasons they will give for why people shouldn't eat meat, you know, but it's not really so much, uh, the, the focus of the conversation just as if it's ever mentioned in the context of climate change, it is barely an offhand mention as, you know, one of, half a dozen things, you know, we could do to reduce our impact on the climate. So, you know, I agree with the caller, but nothing I can do about it myself, um, at least for this show. Secondly, today, there's there's something that I've, I've never discussed on, on the big show. I, I did one segment on it for the members only uh, a little while back, but I have had the suspicion in the past that some calls that I've received through the voicemail line have not been from genuine listeners of the show, but rather have been from people who are most likely being paid by corporations or industries to put out corporate talking points, essentially. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is absolutely something that happens. What I'm not sure of is if it's ever happened to me. Um, but the idea that, you know, corporations pay people to, you know, post in conversation threads or, you know, message boards, uh, you know, blog comments, call into radio shows. I mean, it, to think that they are not doing that to promote their own agenda would be more of a conspiracy theory, I think. Uh, what I don't know is if I have ever received calls from essentially corporate hacks <laughs> trying to push uh, corporate talking points. However, I have received a call since the last episode that sounded so much like corporate talking points that if this person was not paid by the Disney Corporation, then he got robbed. He really, really should have been. He actually reads like Disney PR on, you know, into his voicemail. So I, I wanted to go ahead and talk about it. And so he's responding to a clip from Lee Camp and I'll, I'll let him set it up and then respond. Hi, Jay. This is Dave from St. Petersburg, Florida. I'm responding to your recent inclusion of the clip from Lee Camp titled, You Won't Believe Who's Teaching Children to Love Fracking. Lee Camp perhaps knew his rant was of questionable integrity and tipped us off when he said, quote, apparently the Disney program shows children how great fracking is, unquote. 
the key word is apparently, because from this point on, Lee Camp provides no evidence to support his claim. So I'll stop him here for just a moment to say that it really sounds like he's about to refute everything that Lee Camp had said in his segment, and that it turns out that Radio Disney had no connection to the Ohio, uh, you know, oil and petroleum industry. It turns out that that's not what he's about to say. Camp's post on YouTube that you shared was posted January 13th, yet three days earlier, the January 10th edition of The Hill reported that Disney withdrew from the pro-fracking elementary school tour. No mention of that, of course, in Camp's rant. Okay, so that's great news. So it's, it sounds like Radio Disney definitely was involved with this organization that sounded terrible in every way and then decided to pull out of it. And all the news reporting that I can find uh, says that they pulled out of it due to pressure put on by protesters. So the single most valid point that the caller makes is that Lee Camp's video was posted after the press release from Disney was released announcing that they were going to stop the partnership. Uh, Lee's a personal friend of mine. I'm speculating here. I think that he just did not know that. Uh, he was correct in everything he said had he been speaking in the past tense and not like months or years past tense. We're talking three days past tense. And to his credit, he added a note onto his video so that when you play the video, it says, update, Radio Disney has pulled out of this partnership. So does all of this make what Lee's video said wrong? It, it makes it inaccurate by three days. And if he had been speaking in the past tense, it would have been exactly correct. The real error was on my part for having played the clip on this show without knowing the backstory to any of this. I, I hadn't heard of this story until I heard it from Lee. So I will gladly take the blame for that and please consider this conversation on the topic my correction on the piece. The caller's not done, though. The Disney statement of withdrawal read in part, the sole intent of the collaboration between Radio Disney and the nonprofit Rocking in Ohio Educational Initiative was to foster kids' interest in science and technology, having been inadvertently drawn into a debate that has no connection with this goal. Radio Disney has decided to withdraw from the few remaining installments of the program. Two points on this one. First, I just want to say that Best of the Left passed its eighth year anniversary back in January. I started the show in January 2006, and so we've been going for a long time. I've gotten a lot of messages, voicemails, emails, and so on from listeners. As far as I can recall, this is the first time I have ever had someone actually read a corporate press release to me, either by email or voicemail or any other way. Uh, it, I, I don't know what that means. I'm just saying it's an interesting milestone that we have passed. Secondly, I am so relieved to hear that Disney was duped that they didn't realize that what they were doing was promoting the extraction of oil and gas. What they were doing, you know, what they intended to be doing, obviously, was to promote the education of, of children, get them interested in science and technology. Uh, that is such a relief. Uh, however, I looked up this event and I, I just went to one of the landing pages where uh, they are telling people to save the date for rocking in Ohio at Oh Wow, uh, somewhere that, you know, you could take your kids and, uh, and come to this event. So the, the corporate PR for this event says, Bring the kids and bring the camera. Join Radio Disney for Rocking in Ohio, an interactive show for Ohio families that highlights the importance of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics education in developing Ohio's natural resources. 
The Radio Disney Road Crew will be on site to provide interactive entertainment for the whole family, games, and prizes. It's all powered by the Ohio Oil and Gas Energy Education Program. Parents, find out more at this oil industry PR website, oogeep.org. Don't miss it. And then in addition to the text, there's an image. Uh, I, I would love it if you simply Googled rocking in Ohio and clicked on images to do a Google image search and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. I cannot do it justice by describing it, but I will try anyways. The image that they have for rocking in Ohio, which is exactly what they use to co-brand these events up on stage, Radio Disney on one side, rocking in Ohio on the other. The rocking in Ohio logo is the, is the name of the state, Ohio, spelled out. The O is a green outline that is the state of Ohio, and inside of it is an oil derrick, you know, one of those up-and-down pumping uh, oil derricks, except it is painted green and made to look like a grasshopper. Uh, the letter H is just a letter H, nothing interesting there. The letter I is another oil derrick, a fracking drilling derrick. So it has the, the tower on top and then the drill going, you know, layer upon layer upon layer down into the ground. And then the O is just a letter O, except the negative space in the middle is a drop, like a drop of oil rather than just a, you know, circle or whatever. So something tells me that the people at Radio Disney might have had an inkling that they were stepping into the world of gas and petroleum and energy and not just promoting uh, interest in science and technology to kids. Um, I, I think they just had a suspicion about it, at least. So I, I know what you're thinking. That must have been where the voicemail ended. Uh, however, you would be wrong. Uh, the, the person actually left an additional two minutes of his message in which he talks about the ethnic diversity of the Disney princesses and goes on to espouse all the benefits of the numerous green initiatives that Disney is behind, as if that has any bearing on this particular atrocity that they were related to for far too long. So I'm not going to play the rest of the call for obvious reasons, uh, but luckily for all of us, the caller was kind enough to post a transcript of his call. I mean, obviously he was reading it. It wasn't off the top of his head, uh, but he posted the transcript of the call in the uh, in the comments on the blog post of that previous episode that he's referring to. Uh, so if you are interested, you can go read the rest of it. And to be clear, I am not accusing him of being a, a corporate shill who is getting paid by Disney or, or some other company to prom- or the oil industry in particular uh, to uh, you know to promote Disney in the way that he obviously is. All I am saying is that if he did not get paid by Disney, he got robbed. He really should have. Uh, however, next time you really need to make it more convincing because if you're going to if you're going to do that sort of corporate pr uh, you have to make it sound natural it can't it can't just read like an obvious pr statement because then no one really buys what you're saying so that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews in iTunes and Stitcher, by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestoftheleft, uh, voting for us, nominating us at uh, the Shorty Awards. There's a link at bestoftheleft.com to do that. 
You can stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on our award-nominated Facebook and Twitter feeds. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained